All right, let me have you start. Uh, give me your name and uh, your occupation. Cody McBride. I work for No Laying Up. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first episode of the Downrange Podcast. I am Cody McBride, and you're in for a little treat. New podcast rolling out today. I could not be more excited. And I'm joined today by a very special guest, close friend of mine. Most of you all know him already, Mr. DJ Pihowski. How are we doing? Cody, I'm doing great, man. Thrilled to uh, thrilled to be here. This feels like an idea that started many, many, almost years ago now. And uh, it's super thrilling and gratifying and exciting and fulfilling to uh, see it come to life. I know. I can't believe we're here. And as many podcasts as there are out there, who would have thought that there's, there's this long of a tale to actually get one going. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I can't wait for you to ask me all about all the adversity that I've been through and all the things I've overcome. I'm I'm really excited to uh, be here for the first for the first episode. Absolutely. And you know what? That time <laughs> I'm kidding. will come. Folks, I'm kidding. No, Listen, no, no. That time should never come. It will come. Unfortunately, that's not today because today is about me. It is. It is. Intro to Cody. There's been so many people on whether it's the message board, the comments in the video section, the, uh, you know, social media, all, all kinds of stuff. Just who the hell is this Cody guy? He keeps popping up in all these no laying up videos. He's on the podcast. I think maybe that was him talking about Saudi Arabia and the trap draw. Uh, <laughs> who the hell is this guy? What's his story? What's his credentials? Uh, and I think today should hopefully put a lot of that to rest. I know. It, we, DJ and I earlier this year, we recorded probably about two two and a half hours worth of audio and video yeah uh, and, and and i think that's what we're going to listen to today right that's exactly right yeah we sat down at uh pinehurst didn't really know uh how or why or what we were going to use it for uh but yeah just kind of a uh, hey let's set up some cameras and cody why don't we start uh why don't we start getting you know it's a, a life story i guess i'll say but you're you're still a young 34 years old maybe an old 34 years old uh, but it, I feel old. I'll tell you that. Like, it's it, a, it might be young, but I feel a lot old. It's a lot of life that you've, you've crammed into those those 34 years old. Uh, so, yeah, we, we sat down. We we kind of went through a lot of your story, a little bit of kind of why the uh, why the podcast exists, why you wanted to get out of the military. Spoiler alert, Cody was in the military. <laughs> we'll get into that as well. But, yeah, just kind of why you wanted to get out, what what the transition was like, why golf was a good place to for you to kind of fall back on and for you to kind of make your new your new home. So I don't know if you have anything to to add to that 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 wasn't covered in our extensive last dance uh, style interview, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm, i'll I'll leave that to you. Well, transition is still ongoing. I think it's uh, definitely a work in progress. I've been absolutely welcomed with open arms by my new nlu team and uh definitely assisting with that process but it is something that continues to be a struggle weekly and yeah. i don't know if it's just because of you know establishing new routines trying to figure out what the fuck i'm doing waking up in the morning <laughs> uh outside of like getting the kids to daycare but yeah it, it it's man i can't believe we're here and i could not be more happy about it excited about it you know we're going to be telling some interesting stories from people that are well known not well known at all that kind of have something to do with golf but most of the time probably have never picked up a golf club before we're going to bounce back and forth between you know military and business and a little bit of golf sprinkled in there but 
man, I'm looking for stories of people who, you know, really don't quit that are informative, that people can learn from and try to understand, you know, where do people pick up this, you know, level of perseverance and really never give up mindset and attitude that makes them successful to this day. And success is, you know, on a whole bunch of different levels. So I'm excited to dig into that. It's going to be a lot of my friends, some former colleagues. Hey, it's going to be pretty exciting to get them back in the booth for a little bit, but really, really pumped to to get it going. So that's what we got today. Deej, parting questions, thoughts, anything that we left on the table, you know, thinking back on it, that that's on the top of your head. No, I mean, I guess the only thing I would say is, you know, this is what you're about to hear is obviously extremely, extremely one-sided. It, it's almost kind of putting Cody in a bit of an awkward situation where it's like, hey, let's, you know, just talk about yourself for, you know, two hours. Uh, obviously, it's it's cut down a little trimmed down from that, but it, it puts you in a in a tough spot, both to, you know, you're not someone I know, you're not someone who who loves talking about themselves or bragging on themselves, but at the same time, you're you're truly not to make you feel more awkward probably among the most impressive people I've ever met in my entire life, both from what you've accomplished, your mindset on everything, your your attitude towards everything. And so I'm just, I'm both thrilled to have other people get a sense of that and and a little tiny bit regretful that, that the conversation is so one-sided because it's hard to ask follow-ups. It's hard to pull a lot of stuff out when that's the format. But I think that we're going to have a ton of uh, other opportunities. I can't wait for you to just sprinkle in more stories, more all kinds of things during these interviews, because getting to know you the last couple of years, I mean, there's folks there, there, there's no one you want at your dinner table more than Cody, just like every time you're sitting down and it's, you know, Hey, what's the, uh, what, you know, what'd you guys think of the sixth hole out there? Like, yeah, it was kind of interesting. Right. And then Cody will transition, uh, into like, oh yeah, you know, that, uh, that reminded me of this, this time I was in, uh, Abu Dhabi working like private security doing this, blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, it, it will just go into the truly the most unbelievable stories that you've ever heard. So I, I'm, uh, I'm thrilled for people to be able to see that side of, of you a little bit more in addition to all the great golf stuff that they're going to see in other channels. So uh, couldn't be a better fit, and I'm super happy for you and, and excited to help kick it off. Absolutely. I could not uh, you know, thank you anymore. I hope everybody enjoys it, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. I grew up in northern Montana, one of five kids. I have a very close, tight-knit family where... Farming and agriculture were a, a big part of our everyday lives. And I grew up a normal kid, just like you would see from Montana. So it doesn't matter if it's Legends of the Fall or a, a river runs through it. That was kind of me growing up. I was outside on the land, playing with my John Deere tractors, fishing as much as I could, hunting in the fall, and playing all sorts of sports. And that's just kind of what my family did. We you know, supported each other, it doesn't matter if it's playing Little League Baseball or traveling in the wintertime to, to wrestling meets or eventually playing golf. You know, my family was always there and supported each one of us kids and, you know, they're still a major part of my life now. I got into golf when I was nine years old, just based off of sheer happenstance. We had moved to a new town, so I grew up kind of in, in southern Montana. We moved to the High Line of, of northern Montana. And the town we lived in had an awesome 
18 hole golf course and it's the first time that I've ever seen or really heard of golf before. Prior to that, I would say that I was a, a little cowboy kid. I grew up wanting to be a, a bull rider, you know, Lane Frost and Tuff Hedeman were like my heroes. I wore out the VHS of eight seconds because that's what I wanted to be. My, you know, little Wranglers and, and Garth Brooks flame shirts was what I wanted to wear every single day. And if I wasn't, you know, strumming a guitar somewhere, I was usually outside just playing in the dirt. And when we moved to Shelby, uh, we were introduced to Marias Valley Golf Course. And it's an absolute beautiful club that, that the community really stands behind. And it is the only golf course in town, but it's truly, you know, a passion project for the community. And everybody that I knew played golf. And if you didn't play golf, my brother's friends worked at the golf course, whether inside the shop. Everybody in high school worked on the grounds crew. My introduction was ultimately just from moving there and something that my dad wanted to do with his kids. I quickly got the bug. And it went from going out you know, a couple times with mom and dad and my brothers and sister to me asking to be dropped off every day. So when my mom would come into town to go to work, I'd get dropped off at the golf course at 7.30 in the morning and they'd give me $5 and complete freedom to go play with my friends and try to learn this game that I completely fell in love with. And they would pick me up that night at 5.30 on their way home from work and asked me how my day was and you know I would spend all day out on the course trying to practice trying to learn as much as a kid could but really what I was doing was you know spending more time in the the ponds hunting for golf balls catching frogs and chasing snakes than anything else you know from spending so much time down there it taught me a ton of life lessons that I still you know carry with me to this day and I think the adults that work there the staff did a great job of, of fostering an environment where a kid could come out and just be completely free to run all over the place. You know, it was never overly packed. It was, it's not a, a, a nose up stuffy place at all. It's, you know, a place where you want to see kids running around and people trying to learn and enjoy the game no matter what age you are. I grew up playing sports just like everybody. And from a very young age, I was the smallest kid in my class, so I didn't break, you know, 5'5 five, five until I graduated high school. I grew up wrestling and playing golf. I tried to play football, and I was on the football team, but I was not very good at it just because I was absolutely tiny. And every time I tried to sprint, it looked like I was dragging like a 20-pound sled behind me. I was just the slowest dude you could possibly imagine. Definitely built for distance, not so much for speed. So I learned that very early on in like the fifth grade that I can try to be a basketball player, I can try to be a football player, but I'm not tall enough, I'm not fast enough, I can't jump high enough, so I need to find something that I want to do athletically that can make it still competitive. And I quickly fell in love with wrestling. And wrestling was a major part of my childhood all the way up until I graduated high school. I wrestled every year. I played the game of cutting weight, running with trash bags on, sauna suits. I would wake up and on weigh-in days and jump on the scale and I'd have four pounds that I'd have to lose in 12 hours 
and be just a gut-wrenching feeling using a little bit of backwards planning that the military later taught me. How am I going to make this happen? So immediately layer up with some sweatpants, you know, either uh, put the sauna suit on over top of that so you're, you're absolutely keeping all body heat inside and hit the Stairmaster. And I would stay on the Stairmaster for about two hours, uh, come in, jump in the shower, uh, and I would just sit in the corner of the shower and just sweat and sweat and sweat. And my mom and dad knew exactly what I was doing just after the fact because of how outrageous the water bill uh, would become. So from there and then realize, what can I eat today? I can eat nothing today. What can I drink today? Realizing that more than likely you're only going to be able to get in six, ten ounces of water up until weigh-in time. So get dressed, go to school, continue to think about my weight. I was the king of the Jolly Ranchers and the Bubblicious, and I would just chew and suck on Jolly Ranchers to get as much saliva possible out of my system, and I'd have an empty water bottle and and spit in it the entire time, just completely trying to lose all sort of water weight that I possibly could. Work out again in the afternoon, get ready, meet up with the team and travel to wherever I need to be, and hope that I made weight. And if you didn't make weight, you'd usually get 30 minutes to, to try to burn whatever off it was and, and go from there. And as much as a stereotype that is for wrestlers, it taught me so much about myself and discipline that that is how I live my life to this day. Obviously, I'm not cutting weight anymore. I could shed a couple pounds, but I'm happy where I'm at. But I think it taught me drive and determination when you truly want something and care about something enough to sacrifice and put in the hard work and continue to fight for the outcome that you want at such an early age. It's truly a, a building block that I use, rely on, and is such a part of me to this day. Graduated high school with very little fanfare at all and didn't really know what I wanted to do. Every one of my friends stayed in Montana. They went to University of Montana or Montana State or one of the tech schools, and that's just kind of their plan. I loved golf and I grew up playing golf and I played golf and wrestled all through high school and was fairly competitive and, and placed in state in high school. But there was never any big fanfare of, of trying to, to go play. I just wanted to really work in golf. And I grew up, like I said, at Marias Valley and we had such amazing PGA of America professionals. From the first guy who taught me how to play golf, Joey Esch, to the guy who replaced him, Travis Clark, who, you know, these people are still very active, not just in golf, but in the community, and created like this run of young kids coming out of school that were truly passionate about the business of golf. So I left high school, graduated, and immediately set sails to Tempe, Arizona and was lucky enough to, to get into the PGM program down there and got, I think, as far as at the time my level of maturity would allow me to get in Phoenix. And you know, I blame that on 
ultimately myself, I was a complete fish out of water. I moved from a town that had 2,500 people inside of it to one of the top 10 biggest cities in the country. And I went completely by myself. You know, I learned so many lessons while I was there in my first year that it's crazy what all the good things and the bad things. I was a typical college kid who, you know, when he'd run low on money, I knew that anywhere on campus at, at this point in time, this is like every credit card company was like hawking credit cards still. You just come sign up and they give you like a thousand dollar credit limit. And you're like, yeah, cool. Like, here you go, man. And, and in my world, that's a thousand bucks in my pocket. And I lived like that and just ended up creating a massive amount of debt to win the fact that my grades not being the best that they probably should have been this amount of debt. And then thinking that at the end, like, Hey, I'm still going to have student loans that I need to pay off. Uh, you know, instead of thinking about graduation and what I'm going to do after that, I started thinking about like, what do I need to do now? The best thing about it is that, you know, when I moved down to Phoenix, I knew that I wanted to, to have a job and I wanted to work. And I worked outside service at a couple different clubs and then, you know, was lucky enough to work at Greyhawk Golf Club in Scottsdale and started as outside service and then moved my way up into the shop and then kind of had a pretty cush life. I mean, for a club that sees a ton of traffic from October till April when everybody else in the United States is freezing over and everybody wants to come to Phoenix to play, you know, it was an, a great place with a great group of guys and girls who truly love and are passionate about, about the golf business and make people happy playing golf. But Tempe is a lot and uh, it catches up with you quick. And it got to the point where I was broke, beyond broke when you're like just completely in debt and I still had a year and a half of school left and I'm sitting there thinking like, is this the best bet for me? And it was a hard decision to come to because growing up, the military was a part of my family. Obviously, my great-grandpa served in World War II and then Korea. My dad served in Vietnam. One of my oldest brother was in, you know, took part in the initial invasion post 9-11 into Iraq. But it was never really an option that, that came up. And I remember I was talking to my oldest brother who was in the military and he was just getting ready to get out and he asked me have you ever thought about the military and I honestly kind of laughed about it because I I didn't really ever think that that was going to be me I grew up playing golf I was a kid that was still wearing double pleated pants and a you know at the time a mock tee because I wanted to be Tiger Woods played a ton of golf and I started to think of the adventure side of it and what the world could open up to be for me. And I decided to enlist. The funny thing about the military, and I don't think a lot of people really understand this, but you get to pick your job. And I had no clue what I wanted to do really. I knew that my great-grandfather was in the Air Force, uh, or the Army Air Corps at the time. He was a, a radio transmissions officer, an RTO, 
and basically just handled the comms communications packages on airplanes. My dad was an infantryman. He was a grunt. He trained and was drafted to go to Vietnam, but ultimately never went to Vietnam. He went to Germany and was part of a training detachment there where, you know, getting people ready going in and then ultimately helping them with decompression and everything coming out. I chose the Army because there's no way I was going to join the Marines. That's just not me at all. I had a cousin who was in the Marines and he had the, the highest and tightest haircut I've ever seen in my life. And ultimately, like, I always looked at them and was like, wow, that's really cool. And like, their commercials on TV are like super rad and stuff, but like, that's just not my style, man. Like, just chill a little bit. Like, it's okay. Thought about joining the Navy, quickly realized that what I wanted to do, being a kid from Montana, like, I grew up swimming in lakes and stuff like that, but like, I'm not a scuba diver, man. Like, I want to go be a SEAL, but that's just not going to work out for me because being underwater for too long just messes with me. So I chose the Army. Air Force was never even on the table, which it should have been because anybody who's trying to join the military, join the Air Force, man. Way better life than anybody else. But I chose the Army and I came down and you take a test. It's called your ASVAB. And every junior and senior in high school takes your ASVAB. And what the military recruiters do that is, you know, like it's a score and it basically tells you what jobs you qualify for. So if you're somewhat smart and you have a, a little bit higher IQ score, you can get into some engineering or military intelligence or anything else like that. But that wasn't me. I decided I want to go, I'm going to join the army. I want to be an infantryman because, hey, Cody has now accepted that this is what he wants his life to be. And he wants to, to be the hard guy doing it. Well, I went there, I took my ASVAB and the recruiter's like, I'm not letting you become an infantryman. Your score is way too high on the ASVAB. And they have a quota of people that they have to get into in different branches of not only service, but different MOS jobs to make sure that their quota is up to speed. He's like, you're too smart. I'm not smart at all, but he told me he was too smart and I need you to be military intelligence. It's like, okay, so like, what are these jobs that I can do? It's like, well, you could, there's this thing called imagery analysis. You can look at, at pictures and decipher where like bunkers or enemy positions are at on a map and you, you know, you write up reports on them and let people know where, you know, what things are going out on, out on the field. Like that doesn't sound fun to me at all. You're just kind of looking at pictures all day long. There's signals intelligence, obviously, radios, cell phones. Back then, just getting into to what cyber is now and trying to decipher that and figure out what offensive and defensive ways you can use SIGINT. And there's human, human intelligence. And what he told me is that he's like, you know James Bond? I'm like, yeah, of course I know James Bond. He's like, well, you could be like James Bond. Like, he runs like spies and you know have you seen any of the Bourne movies I'm like yeah man i love the Bourne movies he's like yeah jason Bourne was like trained to run like spies and recruit them and do all this stuff I'm like oh that's sick 
Yes, that's exactly what I want to do. But I still want to be like this hardo too. Like I want to do something that's like worthwhile. And like, he tells me that like, hey, military intelligence is not like, you know, the army is set up and structured to support the ground force. And the lead of the ground force is infantrymen. So intel is kind of in the back and, you know, they like to say they work in the shadows and, and get things done from there. So I was like, God, I still need to figure out how can I be hard by doing this? And he's like, have you ever heard of the Rangers? I'm like, nah, what's the Rangers? And he's like, well, there's Ranger School, which is a training school that you can go to and teaches you leadership, but you get out and you have a, what's called a Ranger Tap. And it's really looked up to, I was like, okay. Then there's this thing called the Ranger Regiment. And it's a, a unit made up of all Rangers. And you go through a, a special selection to get into it. And while you're going through this process, you're also going to get airborne school. You're going to go through what's called RIP, Ranger Indoctrination Program. Now it's called RASP, Ranger Assessment Selection Program. And you're going to be there with all, all Rangers. And at the time, it was an all-male unit too, which is kind of unheard of because everything was then opening up to I guess right at the beginning of, of more jobs and, and MOS's opening up to, to women. So I was like, cool, sounds awesome. Like I want to go with a bunch of hard charging dudes and let's figure this out. It's like okay, you know, here's your paperwork, sign here, I'm gonna get you uh set up for, you know, all your physicals and you'll be good to go. A couple weeks go by, get all my paperwork ready. He sends it over to me. I, I go to the MEP station in Phoenix, do all my physicals, and you go all the way up to sign your actual contract, and then you're actually sworn in. And I go up to sign my contract, and I'm looking at it, and it says, yes, at the time, 97 Echo, which is human intelligence. Now it's 35 Mike, and that, that was it. I'm like, where's my Ranger? My Ranger contract. It's called an Option 40. Like, yeah, that's not in here. I'm like... No, that's what my recruiter like told me I was going to get. And they're like, yeah, you're not going to get that here, son. Sign the paperwork. And I was just so naive at the time. I was like, all right, yes, sir. Let's get it going. Sign the paperwork, swore in, stay the night in this hotel in, in Phoenix, even though I still live there. And the next day I flew off basic training. And that's where the story starts. So I went to basic training and because I was in infantry, I, I went to basic training in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And I got there in early April and I had no clue really where Oklahoma was at on the map at the time. But I do know now is that number one it gets very very hot in the summertime when I was there and number two there's a ton of tornadoes that come through Oklahoma which I had no experience with at all being a kid from Montana and basic training you make the most out of it you learn a lot of cool basic military stuff aka like discipline and listen and when you're told to be somewhere you're there you're in the right uniform and you're 10 minutes early. Anything past 10 minutes early, you're late. Uh, and you learn that very quick. You get in shape very fast. You 
become super tight with the people that are in your platoon or company. And honestly, the people that am I were in my basic training platoon, I'm still close to this day and I still talk to them regularly. Kids from all over the United States, people that, that lived in other countries who came to America and, you know, wanted citizenship so they signed up for the military. It was like the first real world example that I had of like 40 guys from completely different backgrounds all thrown into a tiny room that you live and you train and you eat and you get smoked together. Get smoked is like you get in trouble for doing something, you do a ton of push-ups, sit-ups, flutter kicks, you name it, but a lot of physical exercises. But it was the first time that it was like this melting pot of people from every single nationality or, or heritage that you could possibly think of. So you had white guys, brown guys, black guys, a ton of islanders who are very prevalent in the military and you, you all become super close, but you become close through conflict. And there is just the craziest stuff that you would see because one dude, you know, Hispanic guy from El Paso, Texas, and this kid from Jacksonville, Florida, don't like each other because they, you know, stand or their bunks are facing each other. And one day one of them says something snarky under his breath, and the next day somebody wakes up and has like a dump in their boot. So when the kid puts on his boot in the morning, like he has poop all over his sock, like complete shenanigans that you get through, you fight through tons of fights and, and ultimately you come through the end together and you graduate and you go on to your advanced training. I was fortunate enough and in really good shape and I learned that like the military was a good fit for me. I was routinely, you know, not just awarded or, or praised, but given leadership opportunities above my peers to be in charge of my peers. I maxed out my PT test every time. I was the best shot that we had in the platoon and was given awards from that. And ultimately, if there is such a thing as a distinguished honor graduate from basic training, and that's what I got, which was like kind of a shock for me to being like, you know, 10 weeks ago, I was still playing golf every day, scrubbing carts at night to now here I am getting praised for listening and looking and acting the way that these very angry drill sergeants are telling me to be every day. It really motivated me for more. So distinguished honor graduate out of basic training, went to my advanced training just south of Tucson, Arizona. It was nice to be back in Arizona, but ultimately in order to train for human intelligence, it takes six months. And it's a long, grueling school because it's broken up into two different phases. And the first phase is what they had told me about is you run sources and you understand what a, a source is and how to talk to them and how to treat them and things that they can do for you, things that you can do for them. And ultimately, I realized, wow, this job that I got into has a ton of legal ramifications and the structure in which you're doing it 
literally has laws written based off of it. And you quickly had to realize exactly what laws and what manuals and what your left and right limits are in order to accomplish the tasking at hand, whether that's tasking a source to go collect information on general facilities, individuals, vehicles, you name it. And it became fun. And I was like, wow, this is not James Bond stuff at all, but like, it's still pretty cool. Like, and it was something that like, kind of a light bulb moment for me. And then we moved into phase two, which I had no clue about, but phase two was interrogations. And I had seen interrogations before on TV and in movies, and it's always good cop, bad cop, people getting yelled at or screamed at in you know, a, a detention room or before they get booked. And there's usually donuts involved and all this stuff and like the worst stereotypes you can possibly have for an interrogator or an interrogation. And I realized that on the source op side, yeah, there's a ton of legal, you know, legalities that also continue over. But on the interrogation side is literally me and in my case, a detainee, which is, you know, a prisoner of the Department of Defense. And I have to figure out how to bend and manipulate his overall will to tell me his deepest, darkest secrets in order for me to take that information, report it to get another bad guy to stop an attack, to stop, you know, somebody implanting a, an IED or something like that. And I was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. And I realized that's, that's what I wanted to be. That's what I wanted to focus on. And I was super fortunate at the time that there was a program um, that takes the top, you know, the top of the class straight from the classroom without going to your next duty assignment yet and deploys you. And I qualified for that. So the day after I graduated my advanced training as human intelligence, I deployed to Iraq. I was a brand new kid, fresh out of my advanced training, and I deployed the day after I graduated, and it took me two days to travel to the facility that I was going to in Iraq. And the first day that I got there, I met my senior interrogator and he put me in an interrogation booth with a real life detainee and said, watch this. And I had another experienced interrogator in there who was running an interrogation. It was the fourth day of interrogations with the detainee that he had. And I was just a fly on the wall. And it was the most nervous I've ever been in my life because really, there was a terrorist sitting across the room from me and it's just me and this other guy and the interrogator that I'm watching run this, this session is laughing and joking and having a normal conversation with the guy. And they seem like they're best friends and it, it blew my mind. I was like, this is how this actually happens. And you realize quickly that what you see on TV and what you see in movies to get people to talk does not work. 
you think that you know you're going to be the tough guy where you come in and, and try to yell and scream or intimidate them because I'm the big American and we already know all this information about you, but that's not what works at all. You catch way more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. And from that very first moment sitting in there watching them, I realized that, you know, I was a skinny white dude that couldn't even grow a beard yet. And the guy sitting across the room in a bright orange jumpsuit was a 49-year-old Iraqi who had killed four Americans and planted IEDs at like seven different locations and we're trying to find out where those at because ultimately like American troops or British troops or whoever could drive over them and, and kill them. So there was a sense of urgency that made you hyper-focused on the moment and the words that you use and what you do and, and what you're saying to try to you know get your point across. And the guy that I was watching, the experienced interrogator that I was watching do the session was as chill and laid back and calm as you could possibly be. And talk to him just like he was talking to one of his friends. And they had this rapport between each other that you could tell was developed based off hours and hours and hours of getting to know each other. And as soon as the interrogator got to the point where he was actually going to start asking questions about the IEDs and when they're, where they're planted at, you could see the detainee start to close his fists, cross his arms to put up some boundaries to try to protect himself. And people don't realize that they do that even when they get in uncomfortable positions, but everybody does it. And you saw him think about it and think about the relationship that he had developed with the interrogator and break his arms across and lean forward and say, you know, man, you've been so great to me and so honest to me. I'm going to tell you exactly where they're at and point it on a map that was on a TV behind him and said, this is exactly the location where I buried these IEDs at. That interrogator did an awesome job of moving off of it, asking a couple different questions, coming back a little bit later, asking locations again just to confirm, because you always want to confirm things twice, and then close the session, ask him if he needs anything, and you know the detainee goes back to his cell, and the interrogator immediately takes that information back in and reports it up to the entire battle space to make sure that they're alerted and know where these are at and ultimately saving people's lives, saving people's limbs, you know, and making sure that sons and daughters go back home to their families. And it was this huge eye-opening moment of, oh my God, this job matters so much. And this is exactly what I'm here to do. So the good thing during this five-month deployment is that I was supporting a special operations task force. And it just so happened that because over time I became okay as a basic interrogator, I started to run my own sessions and collect information and report it out. And it was clear and consistent 
that one day, just randomly, I was given what was supposed to be a low-level detainee from Mosul, Iraq, who ended up being this massive detainee who provided tons of information to me that, that saved a lot of people's lives. And the cool thing about it is that at the time, our task force commander was General Stan McChrystal. And General McChrystal wanted to know everything about this detainee and what was going on. And he routinely would ask other interrogators to come personally brief him. And one day he asked if whoever was working this detainee to come brief him and give him the rundown and it just so happened to be me. So I went and briefed him. I was super nervous to see a, a three-star general and you know I was a nothing at the time. And I briefed him. He you know, said, hey, keep up the good work. You're doing awesome things. Why are you so young? I explained the program. He's like, oh yes, I, I know what you're talking about. What are you gonna do when you go back? Where, where are you gonna go? And I said, well, sir, I originally enlisted because I wanted to have an option 40 contract. I wanted to go to Ranger Regiment, but it didn't fall through. And he said, don't worry about it. I'm gonna make it happen. And he had his XO, his executive officer, follow up with the Ranger recruiter. And two weeks later, I came down on orders to go to Ranger accessions. And it was a crazy moment for me to be like, you see your hard work and dedication to something that you're just learning how to do be rewarded by something that big from that, you know, high of a, of an individual, um, was awesome. So I got back from that deployment. I went to Fort Benning, Georgia, did airborne school. And the day that you graduate airborne school, everybody else is super happy because they're going, you know, their new army paratroopers going to the 82nd airborne division or the 173rd or any of the, the special forces groups. And there's a small group of young men who stay back after that. And we're the ones that are going to the Ranger indoctrination program that is right up the hill from the Airborne School training site, but they could not be any further like apart in every sense of the word. So I went from standing in formation, graduating, getting my airborne wings to about five or six Ranger instructors coming, circling us all up and saying, calling off our names, saying, okay, throw your bags into the back of that box truck, go. And immediately start counting down from 10. And there's, you know, 60 of us here. And we're used to doing everything in an ordered fashion. We get in single file line and start putting the bags up. And he started counting down from 10 and we were not moving fast enough and we immediately just started getting smoked. And that's how the next five weeks of my life went. A lot of early mornings, super late nights. They're taking young men who were taught how to do things the army way and they're teaching you how to do things the ranger way. And you see, you know, you're marched around right next to regimental headquarters and third ranger battalions right there. And you see everybody wearing their black PTs, uh, which what ranger battalions wear. 
and you look up to that because you're still wearing just your normal basic army stuff and you're like man that shit looks sexy like i can't wait to get that i can't wait to get my tan beret because everybody else at the time wore a black beret and you know you see these people these men who are teaching you how to do things and they're so professional and so experienced and they're telling you stories about what real life combat is now I said that I deployed and I did I was deployed but I hadn't seen combat yet and there's a huge difference not only that that other people will tell you but I'll tell you the same thing they're, they could not be any more different I think the biggest thing that I remember is there was a lot of late nights doing room inspection and people's beds not being made properly their wall lockers not looking right and taking every single bit of furniture and clothing out of your barracks room and setting it up out on the blacktop called the blacktop the formation area where you stand out and spend the most of your time and outside of that rip i remember coal range and every ranger knows coal range because that's the hollowed training ground where boys become men and you're out there stomping around in the trees doing land nav doing basic movement techniques and becoming one with the the people around you who are about to to enter ranger regiment so i graduated one of the best days of my life was at the very end of of rip my mom and dad were there it's the first time that they had seen me since i'd been in the military looking super skinny shaved head still I had a really good tan though because it was still the end of summer and you stand in formation and the order is given to Don Berets and Don Beret means you put on your new tan beret and it was an amazing feeling and to this day when you see people walking around with a tan beret you know what it means because of the shit that they had to go through to earn that beret. So I graduated, went to Range Regiment with like all Intel. I was put into what's called Special Troops Battalion and started my day-to-day -day life of being a young ranger. And shortly after that, deployed again. Had my first taste of combat that I would learn over time would just become routine for me. Came back from that deployment, it was my first time in Afghanistan, and went to ranger school, which ranger school is completely different than assessment and selection into Ranger Regiment, Ranger School is a three-phase school where it's a leadership school. And at the end of it, you receive your Ranger tab. And there's nothing, when you walk around a Ranger Battalion or Ranger Regiment and you see guys with a scroll and they have a Ranger tab on top of it, you know that, that they've made it and they've gone through their shit. When you see them with a combat scroll, you know that They've done everything that they need to do and are like at the highest level of what you have to do to, to maintain yourself in the regiment. So I went to Ranger School and started out Fort Benning and first time that I was away from my then fiance and you know, you have all electronics and means of communication stripped away from you and you just do what everybody does and that's start writing letters. So writing letters to Yari, to my mom and dad, and, and doing anything you can to occupy your time because you spend like 
you know, 16 hours a day basically laying out in the, the woods pulling security, but really what you're doing is staring at the tree that you're laid up next to and, and counting how many ants are, are crawling up and down it and trying not to get caught falling asleep. Ranger School is broken down into three phases. You have Darby phase at Fort Benning, Georgia. You have Mountain phase up in Dahlonega, Georgia. And then you have Swamp phase outside of Destin, Florida. I made it through okay. The best memories, and anybody who's gone through Ranger School remembers the blueberry pancakes during Mountain phase and up in Dahlonega. And, you know, I think they remember pizzas and pies and, a, you know, a couple beers in Florida once you come out of the swamp. Got done, and I, I knew, you know, as hard as, as it is, because you're literally training 24 hours a day, you're not sleeping. I mean, there's, you, you would go seven, eight days, maybe getting an hour or two sleep a night, because there's all these other tasks that you're doing and you're constantly moving. Not by yourself, of course, but as your platoon, as your company, and you're learning advanced tactics and ultimately how to lead these tactics because it's a leadership school. You're also getting in trouble for doing dumb stuff. You're getting in trouble because you fell asleep while pulling security for taking a poop where you're not supposed to take a poop. I mean, you got to think we're moving all the time. It's not like we're going to the bathroom or there's outhouses anywhere. So you're, you're digging a hole in the ground and you're pooping in it and you're burying it and you're going to get in trouble if you poop somewhere you're not supposed to, AKA like outside of your perimeter where there's security. And there's also, just like basic in NAIT, you just meet people who you've never expected to meet in your life. And you, you meet people and then you see those same people dropping and quitting. The turnover rate at Ranger School is very high. The majority of people who start each class do not pass. I mean, getting your Ranger tab is difficult uh, to say the least. And when you get done, you know how much it actually means. The cool thing for me is that when I got done with Ranger School, my mom and dad again were, were back down for the ceremony. The last time that I'd seen them was when I first got my tambourine and got into regiment. I had done another deployment by then. And, you know, ultimately we were, were, was getting ready to get married. And little Cody of three years earlier is now a completely different person who's grown up and is now about to be a, a NCO in the army with a ranger tab and and just a completely different outlook on life both personally and professionally. Yeah, so deploying into combat versus just deploying to a combat zone and I guess being in combat it's uh, crazy, and I remember the first gunfight that I was ever in, and you know, I think people always think that your body naturally reacts in two ways, fight or flight. I think a lot of people forget that it's actually three ways. You fight, flight, or you freeze. And the majority of people freeze if they don't have any training. And even when you do have training that makes it so you overcome freeze, you still have a decision to make inside whether you're going to fight on or you're going to say, hey, this is an overwhelming situation and I'm going to pull myself out of it. It was very natural for me. I 
knew exactly what was going on by the sounds and by what I was seeing. By the way, it was in the middle of the night and you're seeing everything under night vision and it's just greened out anyway. But it felt very calming. I was, you know, went through my natural freeze and then immediately went into working the problem in front of me and identifying where people and where places are that could provide me cover and concealment and listening to the leaders, you know, that I was with and, and figuring out the next steps of what to do. And this situation of chaos quickly became such controlled chaos and it became like a, a symphony. And the ground force commander, our platoon leader at the time, was seamlessly able to control ground element, meaning us and his three maneuver squads and his weapons squad, and relay information to our air assets that we had above us and call in strikes and get them to be able to identify via lasers and everything else where the enemies are at and get us to move to the right position to, to take out the enemy. And it was a full circle moment for me of realizing, man, this is awesome. I think once you experience that, once it becomes kind of the norm. And for me, very fortunate, lucky, some maybe would say unlucky, some people would say crazy, but I've done that over 15 times. So 15 deployments all over the world to, of course, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, a couple trips to the Horn of Africa and some other locations for other special missions that I can't really get into, not because of locations or anything like that, but there's still people that are actively doing them that you know you need to protect ongoing operations. I couldn't really go any higher in what I was doing in the military. I could stay a little bit longer, but at the same time, there's things that come with being in the military and being in combat for an extended amount of time that naturally start to wear you down. We always talk about in the military and my group of friends, like we're very much like a scalpel. If you wanted a sledgehammer, like you would call in the Marines, but we're like the scalpel to handle like precision stuff. And, and with that scalpel is that you can only use it so many times before it starts to get dull and then you have to replace it. And, you know, in total, I have 15 years of service. I've been married for every single one of those years, except for like the first six months. And Yari and I made a conscious decision early on that we didn't want to have kids young. We knew that we got married pretty young, but we wanted to wait to have children just because we didn't want kids to not hold us back, to, but I didn't want to leave them when we did have them. So we waited until we were in our 30s and our story of how the kids came along is not the easiest story as it is to begin with because I think everybody thinks that they can just, hey, I'm ready to have kids and it's just gonna happen. And when it doesn't happen, what do you do? And this, oh my God, like 
for me in my life, I've always made everything work and I've usually made it work based off of hard work and self-motivation and dedication and like if you get it done and put in the time, it's going to happen. It's not how bodies work though, man. Like, you know, you can only play that card the same way so many times and like if it's not taking it, then it's just not happening. And, you know, we ended up having a, a couple different miscarriages and then we realized that like the pain and, and stress and like this overwhelming feeling of anxiety because we want to have kids now, but we're still managing deployment schedules became too much. And we're very lucky that we reached out and started doing some research and we decided to do IVF. We were selected to be part of a trial that they were looking at for, you know, military couples. And that's how we ended up having our, our beautiful twin girls, which is crazy because we had twins, which is awesome. And I love those little girls absolutely to death. And thinking back on it, all the fear and anxiety of, trying to get pregnant with them, both naturally and with uh, fertility help. I had deployed shortly after the twins were born and I came back and within, you know, six weeks, Yari was pregnant naturally with our third daughter. And it's just, it's weird how all of it works out. Obviously completely meant to be. I could not be more excited and, and you know, tickled to be a girl dad. I think if you had asked Cody of 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that wouldn't have been the answer because I think everybody wants a little boy. But like who I am and the man that I am, I could not wish for anything more than to have those three little girls. And it doesn't matter if they're waking me up at three in the morning because one of them had a bad dream or, or is teething for the youngest one or they're banging me over the head when I have a hangover at 6.30 in the morning because they decided to wake up and they want to watch cartoons. So it's awesome. But part of that like emotional wear and tear and obviously it started to affect us when we wanted to have kids also weighs on a relationship. And that's when the self-doubt and everything comes in there. And I, I think for a long time I put my life and my career ahead of my relationship and my marriage. And it got to the point where I can no longer do that. And you already told me like, you want to have kids, you want to live your life with me. Like, where am I at in your life? And it literally got to the point where she was like, Hey, we're, we're done. Like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a part of this life anymore for me to realize, like, holy shit, man. Like, when does the sacrifices end? When do you stop thinking about yourself, your career, whatever, and start thinking about, like, the woman that, like, you know you want to live your life with, the person that you know you want to have children with, the person that you know you want to be old with um and it was a complete adjustment for me and i think at the time i didn't even realize how selfish i was being i think it's just something that naturally comes with being in special operations is that you're constantly told 
you are the best, you are special, you had money invested into you, you had training, and this is what you need to go do, you need to solve the world's hardest problems, and your wife is just kind of made to feel like they're just there to be your ultimate support system. But when you're not supporting them, like, it dies and like it goes away. I came to the realization that enough was enough and I can only press that button and like live on that red line for so long, both being deployed on operations where my vehicle's been blown up multiple times, I've been in helicopter crashes, I've been shot at, you know, hundreds of times. I've done a lot of cool, crazy stuff. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. They're just cool stories and memories and like, you know, when you look back on it, it doesn't matter. And like, I hope that I get to a point where I never have to tell my girls like anything that, that I did, that they'll pick it up from random stories of things that are told from grandma and grandpa or, or mom or whatever else, but I don't want that to be a part of their life. And I made the decision to, to get out. The struggle with transition is, is real and the most obvious numbers or statistics that you could look at is 22 veterans a day commit suicide. You know, I think we talk about it a lot and it's out there, but I don't think people really grasp what's actually going on. And when you're part of a, a team, when you're part of a unit, when you're part of a brotherhood, where you have somebody on your right and left that you can trust and know that they will have your back no matter what, you seem invincible. There's nothing that can stop you or slow you down. So what do you think happens when all of that is, is removed? Who do people fall back on? Who do people rely on? Because it's not gonna be the VA or, or the VA system and people get lost. And when they transition, I think they get into being the best and they have such a clear understanding of their identity and they all have dreams of what they wanna do in the civilian sector and they get out and things don't happen. Like things fall through and you get told no and like life is hard. In the military, you just get so used to that routine and structure that's there for a good reason. When that's removed, like they go into their shell. I think everybody's best protection is themselves and they close themselves off and isolate them from the community that they were once a part of and they do that because they're embarrassed or ashamed of not being as successful as they think they should be. And it starts this vicious downhill slide. And if you look at it, alcohol and drug abuse are major in the military. And if people think that stops when they get out of service, they're dead wrong. And if you look at it, the mental toll that prolonged wars, prolonged combat does to people. And then you start adding chemical stimulants and, and start making it seem like people are 
either down on their luck or not turning out to everything that they envisioned to, they start to feel like they're completely closed off and they don't have any other options. And it sucks, man, because like, you know, I've had quite a few of my buddies commit suicide. I've had even more of my buddies say, hey, I attempted suicide and it didn't work, but I'm talking about it now. And I would way rather have them because that's actually them taking a step and saying like, hey, I, I, I need help. And I think the biggest thing that we can do as a, as a community is talk about it, discuss it, tell their stories and, and give people outlets to start the healing process. But you can't do that still from hiding or suppressing those feelings or those views. And man, if you have a buddy who you know is struggling, check in on him, call him, text him. If he doesn't answer, go see him because it might be a little bit of an inconvenience for you, but man, you don't know what the guy on the other side's thinking about doing. I think I went for about eight years not playing any golf and didn't really do or think about it at all. I think I watched golf, but I would re like watch majors and, and that's it. It just wasn't a part of my life. And it, it was such a, you know, the most important part of my life when I was a young adult and, and trying to figure out what I wanted to do and then, you know, put it all aside. And something happened where I got the bug again. And I think it's because I was in regiment for a while and, you know, I was done with my training and I had become a leader and you know, I had free time and Yari and I were, you know, married and we didn't have kids yet. And I, you know, wanted something more to do. And I started playing golf again. And, you know, it, I picked it up and it was kind of like it never left. And, you know, once you start going down that road, you know, it's hard to, to pull it back and just be casual. I'm a golf sicko through and through. Like, it's what I absolutely love. And, you know, I think having the brief hiatus from it taught me how much I truly love the game and how much I, you know, want it to be a part of my life. You know, when I was deployed, there's times where I wouldn't pay attention to any golf coverage. And then I think in, like, you know, 2000. 15, 2016 is when I started first listening to NLU. And the crazy thing is at the time is I was doing this from like, you know, basically a, a house that I took over in Northern Syria. And I was the only American there with my linguist and like, you know, a dozen different local militia basically that are there pulling security for me. And I'm running my own prison basically out of this abandoned house. And, you know, in my little safe room that I have there where I have like my internet dish and my connections and everything, I stumbled upon the trap draw. And that was my first introduction to, to NLU. And from there, I've just kind of been ride or die ever since. I got caught up on the main pod and, and have been through every season of tourist sauce and 
you know, I've been extremely fortunate to, to have it be a part of my life. You know, when I say I got the golf bug again, I always find myself in these weird little corners or like offsets of every community that I've ever been in. Obviously in the military, like I, I wanted to be the best. And like when I joined, like I wanted to be a ranger. It didn't work out for me in the beginning, but like I made it happen and I made it happen through my performance. When I was in reg ranger regiment for, you know, a couple of years and I thought, hey, there's something more for me out there. I moved up to the next level of special operations. And, you know, that's why we moved up to Fort Bragg is to be in a higher organizations of the special operations community and it's the same thing with golf and I found myself like in this weird like little enclave of looking at boutique Scotty Cameron was 009 putters and I started to notice that like the people I've never owned a, a fancy Scotty Cameron putter but I always liked looking at them and the craftsmanship of it because I knew that they were different than the Cameron putters that you buy at any golf store. And I started to notice that people within that group were leaving it and going and following other putter designers. And that's when I first heard of Tyson Lamb. And I started looking at pictures of what he was making and, you know, him and his mom running the business and putting everything out basically via Facebook and Instagram. I saw a posting one day of a, basically a, a meetup that they were going to have at Streamsong. And I said, hey, why not? Let's do this and, and signed up and was lucky enough to get a spot and went down and had an awesome trip for three days with people that I've never met in my life uh, and was, you know, felt completely at home. After that trip, getting invited to a follow on golf trip where I met Patrick Boyd who, you know, obviously makes ferals, but also is the guy in charge of, of national custom. And when I met Patrick, he was like, hey, there's a, another group of people over here that I want you to meet. And I'm gonna text your number to, to my friend, Zach Blair. And he has this thing that he's getting ready to start and it's called The Ringer and The Butt Club. Have you heard of The Butt Club? And I'm like, yeah, like I've heard of that. I've seen pictures of their merch and stuff. And he's like, cool. And, you know, Zach hit me up and was like, hey, like I heard, like Patrick said, you're a cool dude. Like, if you want to come to the ringer, like we'd love to have you out and, you know, meet some fellow golf sickos and we'd be down to have you. And I went to the ringer and day one of the ringer, the first group that I was paired with just happens to be Mr. TC himself, Tron Carter. And it was very hard for me because I'm, I'm very entrenched in the history of the trap draw. At the time I knew the, the background and what was going on with NLU and what they were kind of trying to do. And I knew that Australia had happened for tourist sauce and they have all these other big ideas that they're getting ready to, to bring on. And this guy who they like barely introduced as DJ like in the beginning I always used to think that Solly was referring to Dustin Johnson on the podcast and not DJ. So it was weird. And I don't want to say that it was like fanboy moment because there's not a lot of things like in my life that really surprised me or shocked me. And I've met multiple four-star generals, heads of states, our president, former presidents, not just met them and shook their hands, but had conversations with them and, 
and you know meeting TC and and spending that round with TC was like something that I'll never forget. We struck up a friendship that ultimately turned into something that like I could never dream of actually being a part of and that's being a member of No Laying Up. The transition was something that you know I didn't really know what I wanted to do, what I was going to do and and lucky enough was offered a great opportunity of doing something that I'm very passionate about and and kind of looking at as the next chapter that really I'm going to invest in long term and that's telling stories about golfers and golf courses and, and places and people and everything that, that makes up this awesome community and I just got lucky that No Laying Up's the place for that. Yeah, I want to start a podcast and I think I have the ability to, you know, obviously tell stories. I'm a fantastic storyteller. My job in the military was to tell stories and bullshit and ultimately like see who can lie the most to manipulate somebody to tell me like their secrets, right? But I think in, in that, like I, I've developed a ton of really lasting and in-depth relationships with like people who you would never expect and like by them I mean like really bad guys it taught me that like it doesn't matter who is sitting across from you or on the phone or whatever but like you can get deep meaningful conversations out and everybody has a story to tell and everybody can learn from the lessons that they that they have and NLU with the platform and audience that they have is going to make it possible and we're going to tell stories of perseverance, of dedication, of overcoming extreme obstacles both of everyday people and of you know some of the most unique people that there are both in and outside of the world of golf and I cannot be more excited about it. Well, there you have it, folks. That's uh, pretty much, you know, soup to nuts. I think that's that's about the story. Cody, thank you again for taking the time to lay all that out. I mean, I know there's there's some uh, some fun stuff in there, some heavy stuff in there. Uh, what was kind of your reaction? Your your feeling, uh, kind of laying it all out and and listening back to it. Well, super nervous, obviously. <laughs> I tried to be as vulnerable and as open as you could possibly be. And there's a lot of topics that are in there that are extremely personal and things that honestly, I don't know if I would ever really talk openly about them. And a lot of that is not really about me or my struggles or anything, but obviously about some of the family stuff. Uh, that's a huge part of my life. I'm, I could not be happier with where I am at uh how my my role kind of in my family dynamic is and and as you guys heard you know i have the best three little girls that were an absolute gift thanks to a lot of hard work determination and and a little bit of science help so uh never expected to really talk about that but so happy that we did because i think those are stories that matter and the more you can be open and honest about it uh the other people you know say hey we're kind of we're kind of dealing with the same thing. We're struggling with the same thing. 
you have any pointers, advice, or just somebody to talk to. Uh, and then same thing with the majority of the other topics. I got to ask before, before we get out, how did I do as a interrogator? Uh, you're very uncomfortable. I think you were more <laughs> uncomfortable during it than I was, which is impressive because I was For the one in the chair. For sure. With, 100%. With, with yeah. all the lights on. One of these days, I'm going to pop back up and Jack's Beach and tables are going to be turned on you. And I can't wait to see you squirming around in that chair. Yeah, you saw how uncomfortable I was on the easy side. So yeah, let alone uh, let alone on the other side. I'm I'm sure it you'll you'll make quick work of me. I'll I'll tell <laughs> on all my friends. I'll let you know. I'll let you know where they're all at. You just yeah, you just you just say the word. <laughs> all right. So I thank you guys so much for tuning in. Like I said, we're gonna be running these every week. If you have people that are out there that have interesting stories that meet kind of the criteria that I discussed earlier, that are educational, informative. Uh, it doesn't matter what their their position or role in life is. If you have somebody that you recommend and you want, you think they'd be an interest of the podcast, feel free to hit us up on No Laying Up at any of the social channels or please reach out to me at Cody at NoLayingUp.com. I will get back to you. I pride myself in returning every message that I get, no matter what email DM it is, you're going to get something, even if it might be just a thumbs up. But... I'll get back to you. Thank you guys so much and have a good day.